worshiping with you guys then. So if you will, please, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you so much for your grace and your love. Thank you, God, for such beautiful weather outside. And I thank you for the people that you're sending to Arden first. Father, now we want to turn our attention to you. We want to focus on you. And we pray that our worship will be acceptable in your sight. So, Father, I pray for each person here that you would bless them as they've come to your house today. We pray for those who are traveling, that you'd give them safety. And we pray for those who are sick, God, that you would put a healing touch upon their bodies. We know that many in our congregation are praying for your healing touch upon their bodies. As we worship you now, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be present among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy, for the Lord Most High is awesome, the great King over all the earth. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham, for the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted.
Let us pray. Oh God, as we gather today, we have gathered to sing to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Help us to enter worship with a heart of praise. Help us to open our hearts to hear your word. And in everything, we just want to lift and magnify your name and proclaim that you, our Lord, are mighty to save. We pray this prayer in your holy name. Amen.
just give you a few pointers on how to handle rowdies. The first thing you do is to get the psychological edge on your adversary by showing supreme confidence. How do you do that? You stand your ground. You brace yourself in case he throws that first punch. And then you just look him straight in the eye like this. Like this, Barney? Yeah, that's kind of... Close the eyes just a little bit more. And then if you have any trouble closing them, while your opponent will close them for you. Andy, there's a time for kidding and a time for serious. Now, this is it. Now, the next thing in self-defense is muscle control. When you brace yourself for that first punch, you make yourself hard all over, and nothing can hurt you. Let me show you. And you hit me right there. Just as hard as you can. Well, it won't make a dent. <clears throat> Go ahead, Oak. It's okay. Come on, Oak. Come on. See, I'm braced. See? Uh, you can't hurt me. Come on. All you got. Come on. Oh, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> you want to help Barn in that chair there? That didn't hurt him because he was braced for it, weren't you, Bob? All right. How many Andy Griffith fans we have out there? Now, for those of you who are under 40, I may need a little explanation. By the way, my wife has never watched an Andy Griffith show ever. I think maybe once with me. But Andy Griffith was a show in the 1960s, very popular. And basically, it was a story about this sheriff, Andy, and his partner, Barney, and what's interesting about Barney is he was kind of a timid guy. But whenever he put on that police officer's uniform and had that gun, he just started walking around with a little bit of swagger and confidence, especially when Andy was around him. When Andy was behind him, he could face any criminal. And there were certain episodes where he would be going off on a convict, and they wouldn't pay him much attention. But when Andy was standing behind him, they would really pay attention and be alert. And it made me think of our passage today. We're going to talk about how Jesus comes and he sends out his 12 with power and with authority. Have you ever been in a place in your Christian life where you lacked a little bit of confidence? You lacked victory? And it's like, why do we walk around as it's like Good Friday? Have you ever thought about that? A lot of Christians live as though it's Good Friday and they forget Jesus rose on Sunday. It's Resurrection Day. And we should walk with victory in a Christian life. So today, for those of you just joining us, we're going through the Gospel of Luke verse by verse. So we finish chapter 8, where Jesus shows his authority over nature, over demons, over sickness, over disease. And now we're going to see that same authority. He's going to send his 12 out. And we're going to ask this big question today. Are you living in God's power and authority today? If not... How can we change that? So before we begin, let us pray. Father, thank you for victory. And God, I know many of us experience it temporarily, but very few of us live in this Christian victory you've called us to live. So now, Lord, we turn our hearts to you. God, we know that we're people in need of your grace and forgiveness. So for that, we pray for your forgiveness and for your grace. And Father, we pray the Holy Spirit would be present today. And that we would see what it's like to be members of the kingdom of God and what the culture of the kingdom looks like. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we're going to look at this passage, Luke 9. And we're going to talk about four characteristics of the culture of the kingdom of God. If you will, let's start in verse 1 of Luke chapter 9. Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority. Someone say power and authority. There you go. Power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, take nothing for the journey, neither staffs nor bag nor bread nor money. And do not have two tunics apiece or two changes of clothes. Whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And whatever, whoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Before we read verse 7, Jesus basically gives them some interesting instructions. He said, listen, don't bring an extra change of garments. Don't bring your visa or discover card. Go just as you are. 
and trust God will provide. And it's like, how, how do you do that? We're going to talk about that. Look at verse 7. Now Herod, the treacherarch, heard of all that was done by him and was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead and some that Elijah had appeared. And others that one of the old prophets had risen again. Herod said, John, I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. May God bless his word. So what does it look like to be a member of the kingdom of God? What does it look like, the culture of the kingdom? In verse 1, Jesus sent out his disciples. And notice in verse 1, he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. So the first aspect of the culture of the kingdom is this. Spiritual power and royal authority are bestowed for kingdom purposes. So here you have the 12 apostles, 12 disciples, and Jesus empowers them to do what he's been doing over the past about two years. So over the past two years, they've seen Jesus heal people. They've seen people raised up from the dead. They've seen, we talked about last week, the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years and Jairus' daughter healed. They saw the guy with the legion of demons healed and restored. So now Jesus is saying, what you've seen me do, I want you to go and do. And I'm sending you out in my authority, but also with my power. Now, it's really hard to be called to do an assignment and to have the authority or the title, but not have the power. And I joke with a lot of our school teachers here. Some of you may not know this, but I was a substitute school teacher for a little while in my 20s. And it's really hard when you have the authority to teach the class, but not the power. Any, any of you teachers ever had a class get out of control? And you had the title, but that didn't matter to the kids, right? <laughs> Go to the principal's office. You know, it's like there, there's the real power right there. So it's one thing having authority. It's another thing having power. So Jesus gave the disciples both. Now, that word power in the original language is the word dunamis. You probably, that word sounds familiar. It's where we get our dynamite from in English. So dunamis was the same exact word we talked about last week where the woman who had the bleeding for 12 years touched Jesus. And Jesus said, who touched me? For I perceived that dunamis went out of me, power. So that same power that healed the woman, now Jesus gives to the apostles. And then the word authority is also a power word, but it has to do with the ability to carry it out. It's having influence. So Jesus sent his 12 kingdom apprentices out and said, whatever you saw me do, I'm going to empower you for that purpose. So if we look through scripture, there is a connection between the word of God and the power of God. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it penetrates. So we see there's a connection between the word of God and the power of God. I think the reason why so many churches have lost their power is they've watered down the word. Whenever you water down the word, guess what? You begin to lose the power of God in your life and in your church. Jeremiah the prophet, in verse 23, chapter 23, verse 29, the Lord says, Is my word not like fire, says the Lord? And like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. Now you think about fire. Whenever fire touches something, it's forever changed. Whenever a hammer hits something, it's impacted as well. And it's changed. In the same way, the word of God comes with power, with authority. Dr. J. William Chapman was once asked the secret of his power. He was known as a, a Christian who had some victory in his life. And I'll read you a quote. He said, I find that I have power just in proportion as my soul is saturated through and through with the word of God. In other words, when I am in God's word and it saturates me, there's a direct correlation between that and with power. So Jesus sent his disciples out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Now, why would he ask them to heal the sick? Couldn't he just ask them to save the souls? Why would he ask, why don't you... Heal the sick. Well, part of the part of the reason why is the kingdom of God. We've got to redefine. We talked about this a few weeks ago. It's God's rule and reign across the universe, across the cosmos. But specifically on earth, it's the rule of reign in God's 
people in their hearts. So that's the present kingdom. But then there's a coming kingdom where Jesus is going to come. He's going to defeat Satan and his enemies, throw them in the lake of fire. And he's going to establish the kingdom on the new earth. There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, and a new city. And that's when the kingdom will be fully established at that point. So now the kingdom, Jesus says, is within you. It's in, it's in your heart. So what does the kingdom look like? It's anywhere where God's influence invades your space. It invades your space. It invades how you treat people. So think about it like this. In heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the two are synonymous. But in heaven, are, are there any sick people in heaven? Last time I read the Bible, there's not. So when Jesus is getting the gospel message out, Everywhere he touches, people are getting saved and people are getting made whole. He is healing people. So there's, there's two spectrums, and I'm going to tell both spectrums of interpretation of this. So my, my, my friends that are more Pentecostal side, and I, I love my Pentecostal friends, they will say that because of this passage, we should be seeing people all over the place healed and, you know, we need to have more faith. And, you know, so they have that point. Now, on the other hand, my more reserved friends will say, you know, the healing just took place in the Bible times. But now, you know, the, the Bible's completed, so we don't really see healings anymore. Now, which side is correct? I think there's some truth somewhere in the middle. We're, we are not on the same level as the 12 apostles. Couldn't we all agree that we're not writing scripture? There's only 12. And the Bible is closed. But last time I checked, there's nowhere in the New Testament that says the church lost its power. There's nowhere in the Bible. So we should still experience power and authority in the church today. Now, why don't we see it anymore? Well, on one side, when the gospel message in the kingdom was being proclaimed, they were establishing the church. So you saw a lot of saturation of miracles. Today, do we see as many miracles? We don't. But that doesn't mean miracles don't still happen. That doesn't mean miracles don't still exist. Just because we see it doesn't mean God has changed. So I, I see both sides, and I'm somewhere in the middle. I believe God still heals. I believe God still does miracles. Part of the reason we don't see it is are we saturated with God, like the early church? Are we consumed with Him? When you read through the early church, it says they met in the temple and from house to house, how often? Daily. It's hard for a lot of us just to make it to church once a week. The early church was so hungry for God. They could not wait to, to go to each other's houses and to, to break bread together and to pray. And they were saturated with the word of God. They were saturated with prayer. And I really believe that God wants us to be filled with him. But you know what? We're, we're kind of this vacuum and we're going to fill ourselves with other things. And you know what? We can fill ourselves with pleasure and leisure and luxury. Those things aren't bad, but we're not to be filled with those things. We're to be filled with God and his presence. So the more that we're filled with things other than God, the less we're going to experience his power and his authority. And by the way, in other countries where the gospel is getting out there, there's still reports of many miracles being done. So God is still doing miracles. Just because we don't see it doesn't mean God isn't doing it. Amen. And last time I read the Bible, Hebrews 13, 8, it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And just, just before you discredit and say this was only for the 12, if you read through the rest of the Bible, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 70 or the 72, and guess what? They're doing the same things the 12 are doing. So it wasn't just the 12. In the Great Commission, Jesus gets his disciples. And in Matthew 28, 18, he says what? All authority has been given to me. So there's the authority. Where's the power? Fast forward to Acts 1.8, what does it say? But you shall receive power. And by the way, it's the same word, dunamis. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be my witnesses. So here's the truth. We are not in the same league as the 12 apostles. But we should still have power and authority to live victorious Christian lives. Can I get an amen? So many of you know some of my weaknesses. I, I'm not very good with my hands. I just kind of laid my man card on the table. I, I'm not good with fixing stuff. I use that to hire people. So this year, my green John Deere mower, uh, you guys have seen me on this before. I've showed a picture before. But my green John Deere mower started losing its ability to mow. 
I have a really steep hill in my front yard. It wouldn't climb up the hill anymore. Whenever I would turn around a corner, it would just wouldn't really move. And whenever I'd, I would try to start it, it wouldn't start. So I had to get one of those portable cranks, you know, where you use for a car battery. I got one of those, and I would have to jump start it. The challenge is every time I got off the John Deere, I, it would die, and I have to run back up to the garage, get the portable starter, start it. And then every single time, so when I fi- found like a, a dog toy or something in the yard, I would have to lean over like this so it wouldn't die on me and afraid I wouldn't cut myself. It was crazy. So I called one of my friends who's mechanical and said, hey, can you help me do a tune-up? And so he looked at it. There was nothing wrong with it, just the fact that it wouldn't start. So I was like, you know, I'm going to try just to get a battery and see if that will do the difference. So I got a new battery. And you would not believe, folks, my John Deere runs like a deer again. I mean, it's climbing hills. It's going around curves. And the reason why I didn't think it was the battery, I had bought a new battery last year. But one thing no one ever told me, if they told me I forgot, is if you leave a lawnmower sitting like dormant for a year and don't unplug the battery, what's going to happen? It's going to drain even a brand new battery. No, no one told me. Or I, I wasn't a good listener if they told me. I forgot. Mike, you should have told me this. So, so anyways, I didn't expect that. So when I got the new battery, the John Deere runs amazing. And I think there's some parallel with the Christian life. Whenever we become a believer, God gives us a new heart, the Bible says. He takes the heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh, a new heart. The problem is if we sit dormant, if we're not active in our Christian life, the power is still there, but some, somehow there's a disconnect where it's not getting to the engine of our lives. And some of us need a battery recharged by just being active again. You'll be surprised. And this, this is, parallels even your physical life. You ever notice, for those of you who go to the gym, have you ever skipped a month out of the gym and went back? How hard it was to even walk on a treadmill? <laughs> You're like, I was running three miles, now I can barely walk half a mile. I mean, this is parallel in everything in your life, including your Christian life. So here's the thing. There's power that's available, but you have to be tapped into the source. And the source of the power in your life is the person of the Holy Spirit. So here's the thing. Every believer has the Holy Spirit. The problem is, does the Holy Spirit have all of you? I was talking to young men recently about this. And I said, it's kind of like you guys remember the high school janitor. Whenever, you know, the janitor comes, whenever there's a mess, who do you call? You call janitor. He, He or she comes and cleans it up. Whenever there's a problem, who do you call the janitor? You ever notice the janitor's keys? How the janitor has like 50 keys, one for each door of the, the school or the building? We often treat God like the janitor. We say, God, when there's a mess, clean it up. When there's emergency, God help. But you know what? God doesn't want to be the janitor. He wants to be the principal. He wants to be the CEO of our lives. So what happens is when you get saved, a lot of us have the, the keys. Like, God, you can have this room. This room, but not this room. Don't touch that. And what God says is, listen, I want to be Lord of your life. So you have to exchange the janitor keys and you have to allow me to be Lord. Give me the master key that works for every room of your house. And then you can tap into that power and that authority. Amen. So it brings up the question, how do I possess power and authority today? You know, we know we're not the 12 apostles. We get that. But we're not going to go to the extreme to say because we we haven't experienced a miracle. There's no miracles that exist. I I know there's miracles that exist. I know of two women in this church, uh, Michelle being one of them, that could not get pregnant. I think she said for 17 years. And people in the church are praying for her. And guess what? Millie just turned a year old. That's a miracle. And let us not forget the greatest miracle is when a person receives Christ. That's the greatest miracle of all time. So look on your listening guide. First uh, John 4, 4, it says, you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than what? The spirit who lives in the world. So here's, here's where the victory comes in. God is greater than the spirit in the world. God is greater. So you should have victory. You also may not realize this, but currently, not just when you get to heaven, but currently, you have resurrection power inside of you. If you look at the passage in Ephesians on your listening guide, in verse one, chapter 1, verse 19, it says, What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So here's the beautiful thing. If you are feeling down today, if you are feeling depressed today, if you are feeling sick, 
we do live in a world that's fallen. There are sicknesses. There, are, there is depression. But never forget, inside of you is resurrection power. And we talked about last week. For those of you who missed last week, uh, God really moved it turned into a healing service. And I've heard a lot of good, good feedback from you guys about how that was meaningful. But we said this, whenever a Christian prays for healing, God always says, yes, it's just a matter of when. It's always a matter of when. We know that when we get to heaven, all, all sickness and disease will be gone. So that's the ultimate win. Some of us get a win on this side of eternity. Some of us have to wait for the win. But we know that God has promised us healing and hope for the future. Amen. So listen, it's not your best life now. It's your best life later. You ever, you ever hear the saying, your best life now? Well, this is the best life now. <laughs> I got news to tell you. There's something much better on the other side. So don't get in your mindset it's your best life now because the greatest is waiting for us. Amen. Also, we have authority to speak the gospel without fear. Whenever you're sent out with power and authority, you can speak the gospel message boldly. I was telling the first service an example that came to mind when I was looking at this text. Many of you know Randy Shepard and Jamie Johnson. Uh, Randy is the type of guy, he will witness to anyone, anywhere, anytime, not afraid. President Obama was in town at the Grove Park Inn. Guess who came to see him? Randy Shepard. He was playing golf there at the Grove Park. And Randy said, President Obama, can I share a word with you? And his security team was out there. And somehow he got through. The president came over and they had talked basketball for a little bit. And he said, President Obama, can I share something with you? He said, yeah. He said, have you repented of your sins and trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? He said that to the president. And Randy said he responded something like, I do that every day or something like that. So, but he, he has boldness. He doesn't care any person, any place. But if you think that only Randy Shepard can have the potential for that, listen, we have power. We have authority. We have it. We just got to tap into it. Some of us are like my John Deere tractor. You just got to keep active and get charged, recharged, and allow God to fill you with his presence. Amen. So here's, before we go into point two, this is, this verse, here's what it does not mean. A few things you may want to write down. I don't see myself on the same level as the 12 apostles. So that, that mentality is not correct. It doesn't mean we chase demons around every corner. Now, God may use you to deliver somebody, but you don't go searching for it. I mean, that's, that's kind of weird. <laughs> so I wouldn't encourage that. Um, it doesn't mean we walk around with a name it, claim it mentality because only God has the final word. We don't. So there's some to balance it out. So that's why I said my view is kind of in the middle. We have power and authority. We're not on this extreme where, you know, you're seeing a miracle is miraculous because you hardly ever see it. So if you saw it all the time, would it really be something extraordinary? I mean, it's something that's wow. But on this other side where we rationalize and say, well, that was just for this certain stage in history. Listen, you won't find scriptures saying where the church has lost its power. And I think it's time we tap back into the power. Amen. All right, that was enough on point one. Number two, what is the culture of the kingdom? The culture of heaven prevails where Jesus dwells. The culture of heaven prevails where Jesus dwells. Look at verse two. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Notice it says he sent them. In my best chronology, uh, looking at this text, um, I found that this was probably after about approximately two years, you know, plus or minus some, it was around two years. Jesus was going into the third year of his ministry. So the disciples had had up to two years observing Jesus, watching him. And here's a little principle I want you to write down on your notes. We can learn this from Jesus' time with the crowds, and then a lot of time with the twelve, and then even more time with Peter, James, and John, and then a lot, a lot of time with John. Here's something you can write down, and this is not original with me, but more time with fewer people yields greater results. More time with fewer people yields greater results. You ever heard the saying, that person's a mile wide and an inch deep? That wasn't true of Jesus. He spent time with the twelve. He talked through. He discussed it. So on your listening guide, you'll notice there's five steps of leadership development. And this comes from Patrick O'Connell. I thought this was really good. And it really models a lot of what Jesus did. Step one, I do, you watch, and we talk. So let's, let's put uh, something in here. Let's say Diana's working with someone in the kitchen. So step one, I'm doing it. You're watching me cook, and we talk about it. 
Step two, I do, and guess what? You're helping. And then we talk about it. Step three, you do, I help, and we talk. Many of us never get to step three because we keep doing. Step four, you do, we watch, I talk. And then step five, you do, and someone else watches. So here we say, see the st- stage of Jesus' ministry where now they've been watching Jesus doing and helping, but now what's happening? Jesus is sending them to step four, you do. And all of a sudden they come back and they talk about it. And then we see in the Great Commission, we're doing, and the other, we're taking other people along. So you see the leadership style of Jesus. Now, by a show of hands, how many of you have ever had a boss or employee? Don't raise your hand if they're here today. They threw you in without many instructions, and you just had to figure it out on your own. Anybody ever been there? How does that feel? <laughs> how does that feel when, and then you had, they had expectations they didn't tell you? And then you got in trouble when you didn't know you weren't a mind reader. And you know how the story goes. So the leadership style of Jesus is so important. So he sent them out to preach the kingdom and to heal the sick. And as we've mentioned before, healing the sick was a part of the kingdom because there's no sick people in heaven. And that's what's going to be restored. Aren't you glad for the day when your body will never ache with arthritic pain again? Aren't you glad for the day when you never have a cluster migraine headache again? Aren't you glad for the day when you never have a stomach ache, body ache, you'll never be depressed or down? That day is coming when we get to see him face to face. But in the meantime, we need to walk around with joy. Doesn't mean we'll be happy all the time. Doesn't mean we'll never suffer from depression or sickness. But you know what? The fruit of the Spirit is joy. And joy is a little foretaste of what the kingdom is going to be like. Joy in the presence of God. Amen. All right, number three. What's the culture of the kingdom? And this is an intriguing passage here. Number three. Discipleship is an exciting journey of faithfulness and trust. So before we read verses three and six, I've got to give you a little uh, con- background here. This was a short-term mission trip. It wasn't a long-term mission trip. So to take this passage and apply it directly to long-term missionaries, it will not work. And by the way, later in Luke's gospel, Jesus gave different instructions. He said, now you can take certain things. In this particular mission process, let's get, read his instructions. He said, take nothing for the journey. You can't take your staff. So in other words, you have no protection. You've got to trust me. No comfort there. No bag. So ladies, you can't bring your purse. Guys, you can't bring your wallet. No bread. <laughs> Don't bring any uh, lunch along. Don't take any money and don't have two tunics apiece. So you're wearing one tunic. The other one will be a change of clothes. So put this in 2018, Asheville, Hendersonville, Fletcher language. Listen, I'm sending you on a short-term mission trip. The mission is so urgent because there's people that are dying and the gospel needs to get out. You don't have time to pack. You don't have time to bring a change of clothes or even a toothbrush. No American Express. Just go get the gospel out preach the kingdom, kill the sick, and then come back. And here, here was the underlying thing. Trust me. Trust me. And before, we're like, that's bizarre and radical. You've got to understand also the culture. In the Jewish and Palestinian culture, it was a hospitality culture. So if you were a fellow person that was related in some way, you know, it could be a nationality, it could have been by faith, um, or if you were just passing through, a lot of times you'll see in Scripture they were just passing through, and guess what? They showed hospitality even to strangers. So it wasn't just to closest kin or to, to relatives. But in Scripture it talks about show hospitality. So here's the idea. If you were passing through my village and you were getting the kingdom message out, part of me accepting your message was also taking care of you, providing water to wash your feet, providing food for you to eat, providing a change of clothes. Now, let me ask you a question. Does their culture have that today? How many of us are taking in strangers off the street? Anybody? Not very many of us. So this is kind of foreign to us. But in Jesus' time, it was very well part of the culture. So he said, if they receive you, they will take care of you. If they reject the message of the gospel, they won't provide for you. So let's, let's contextualize this to 2018. What does that look like for today? Number one, travel light. If you want to be a kingdom Christian and you want to have a gospel impact, travel light. How many of you know when you carry around burdens, 
it's hard to do your ministry effectively or efficiently. So he said, travel light. In this case, they took nothing. For us, travel light. So this implies a sense of urgency with a gospel message. Let me ask you a question. Can we talk, church? How many churches feel more like a country club than a rescue mission? Do we still have our sense of urgency like they had in the early church? I mean, it's been almost 2,000 years, and the message was so urgent then. You know, people are dying. Have people stopped dying today, or are people still dying? Could Jesus come back at any moment? We've lost our sense of urgency. So the church should feel more like a rescue station instead of a country club. A country club is relaxing. and By the way, there's nothing wrong with a country club, but a church should never be a country club. We should be a rescue mission within a foot of hell. We are not a, a, a showcase for the saints, but we're a hospital for the sick. Amen. So urgency. In other words, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to win just one more person to Jesus. I'm willing to bet the family farm if it means one more person comes to Jesus. And over to God and our culture, we would have this sense of urgency. The problem is we don't know how to travel light anymore. Now, let me talk to the ladies. How many of you, when you go on vacation, you take multiple suitcases? I'm raising my hand with you. Just yesterday, this is an honest confession, we were cleaning out our, my drawers, just extra clutter. And I discovered shirts I didn't know I had. They've been sitting on the bottom for like a year. And I'm like, I missed that shirt. And just within a few minutes, we had three trash bags full of clothes we need to get rid of because we, we were over encumbered with stuff. Now, how many of us do that with our spiritual life? We have so many things dragging us down that we really don't prioritize our lives. And we have to ask God to help us get things back in order. Amen. So someone say travel light. The second travel tip, if I'm your spiritual tour guide, would be this linger longer. Linger longer. I think it's humorous where he tells the disciples, now put yourself in their sandals. You have no food, no extra clothes. And you're completely relying on the hospitality of the guests. So Jesus gives them this instruction. Don't try to change houses. So here would be the temptation. You're in one house and you see someone else accepted the gospel message and their house is a little bigger, a little nicer. At this house, you're eating like soup and ramen noodle. The other house, you hear they're serving filet mignon. So the tendency will be like the grass is much greener over here. And I'm going to go over there. Now, what, what relevance does that have to do with today? We need in a spiritual life to be solid and stable and grow roots. My high school principal used to give this southern expression, see if you've ever heard it. A rolling stone nev- never what? Gathers any moss, right? We live in a day where people float from relationship to relationship, from church to church, and there's never any roots. And I'm not saying God can't call you to a new season of life, but remember to linger longer. Because otherwise, all of our relationships are shallow and superficial. And you remember what I said, more time with fewer people yields greater results. So grow some roots, linger longer. And the third travel tip before we move on, and this is a hard one for me, don't wear your heart on your sleeves. What does Jesus talk about with shaking the dust off your feet? Is he against dirty feet? I mean, what's, what's the whole point? In the Jewish culture, because the Holy Land was so sacred... Jerusalem was so sacred. Whenever you went to Gentile country, non-Jewish territory, before you came back, one of the customs was this. You would take your sandals and wipe the dust of the Gentiles off your feet before you went back into the promised land. I don't want to take this dirt into the Holy Land. So here is the idea behind it. I'm cutting off my ties with the world. So what Jesus is saying is someone rejects the gospel message, you shake the dust off, meaning, listen, you're, you're like the unbelieving world. You're not accepting the gospel, so I'm shaking the dust. So what relevance does that have with us? Some of you wear sandals. Most of you don't. I mean, what, what's the dust? The idea is if someone rejects the gospel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus. So the reason why some of us don't have that boldness and authority is I'm afraid they're going to say, what? No, I'm afraid they reject. Listen, you're just the messenger with the message. They're rejecting Jesus, not you. So don't take it so personally. So... I really think most of us would have a little more boldness if we didn't take it personally. Be willing to be rejected. Be willing to get the gospel message. Don't worry about it. Just leave the results in God's hands. So don't wear your heart when it comes to sharing and being rejected on your sleeves. Now there's a practical thing, and 
Aaron author brought this up in the first service, so that was really good. When he talks about healing the sick and doing all these things and preaching the gospel, there's a very practical issue. Sometimes you have to meet people's physical and felt needs before you can meet their real needs. Did you realize that? It's hard to hear about Jesus on a hungry stomach. It's hard to listen about Jesus when you've got a migraine headache. So often we have to meet the physical needs so we can meet the spiritual needs. Now, back to the, back to the extremes. There are some churches that are all about humanitarian effort. You know, meeting needs, food, but there's no gospel. There's no good news. It's just meeting needs, and it's kind of like, you know, we're just like a spiritual Red Cross. On the other side, we're just going to give them the gospel and give them the message, but we don't care about your needs. It's somewhere in the middle, just like Jesus. He met needs, and he gave the gospel. Let us never be extremists on either side. Let us do both. Let us feed the, the hungry, but let us also give them the gospel. Amen. All right, finally, number four. The last aspect of a kingdom culture, and this is one of my favorite parts, people everywhere are drawn to know more about Jesus. People everywhere are drawn to know more about Jesus. So you have verses 7 through 9, Herod. Now this Herod is Herod Antipas. In the Bible, there's New Testament, there's four Herods. You have Herod the Great that was around at the birth of Jesus, and because he was such an egomaniac, he wanted all, anyone that proclaimed to be king, he wanted them dead. So he had all the children, two and under, die. Which, by the way, historically, he died shortly after that. I don't know if you guys knew that, but he died shortly after that. So that was during the birth of Jesus, Herod the, Herod the Great. This Herod is Herod Antipas. That's Herod the Great's son. And Herod Antipas, let's just say he had a bad rep for good reason. You guys want to hear a little gossip about him? It's not gossip, it's the truth, but... He went to visit his brother Philip in Rome, and he noticed Philip had a very attractive wife. And she, you know, had a good relationship, but she wanted power. And because Herod Antipas was tetrarch of the land, he was able to seduce her away from his brother. He took her back with him, and he got married to her. So he stole his brother's wife, and that didn't go over so well. So John the Baptist confronts him, and guess what happens to John the Baptist? He gets beheaded. So you see here, this Herod has a guilty conscience. And he's like, who is this Jesus? And he wants to know about him for the wrong reasons, but he still wants to know about him. So here's the thing. The church, if we are walking with power, spiritual dunamis, and authority, we're sent out in Jesus' name, people are going to start to talk about Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if we changed the narrative? I'm not against sports. I'm a big sports fan. I watch ESPN like a lot of you. I'm not against travel. I'm not against a lot of stuff. But wouldn't it be great if the central conversation was, did you hear what's going on at that church? Did you hear about this person? Did you hear? And it was all positive. I want to be a good news bearer in a bad news world. I want people to get excited about Jesus, excited about the gospel. Because guess what? Whoever wins the Super Bowl, it's going to be different every year. You know, you may... You may repeat, but do you really care about who won 10 years ago? Do you realize everyone, it sports, it changes? You know, with travel, it's great, but you forget sometimes the, 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 the memories and the scenes. And it's like, oh, yeah, I remember going there. And then you forget the name of the restaurant. I mean, it, it, all this stuff is, is fine. But I think the best thing is we talk about things that are eternal, things that will last beyond our lifetime. Amen. Speaking of which, in 1995, a man by the name of Gaylord Kamarabi, um, he was the general secretary of the Bible Society of Zimbabwe. So Gaylord was, you know, getting the Bibles out in the African land. And he came up to one man, and he didn't want to take the Bible. He said, listen, I'm going to give you this Bible. And the guy said, I'll take it, but I want to be honest with you, Mr. Gaylord. I'm going to smoke, I'm going to make cigarettes and smoke the Bible true story you're like what so he's like okay as long as before you smoke the pages if you read the page before you smoke it and the guy agreed to do so so two years pass mr gaylord is speaking at a church and he's trying to get bibles into everyone's hands and this guy at the end stands up and it says before we close the service i got a, a, something to share two years ago mr gaylord gave me a bible and at that time i was a drunkard i, I was in way in the world and he said, I told him I was just going to smoke the pages, make homemade cigarettes and smoke the pages. And he said, I smoked my way through Matthew, but I read each page. I smoked my way through Mark. I smoked my way through Luke. But then I got to John three sixteen. 
And he said, all of a sudden, the light shone on me, and I couldn't smoke the pages anymore. I gave my life to Christ. True story. And, you know, it's just like the Word of God has power. And people want to know about Jesus if we will just get it out there. Amen. So one thing to think about, ask you the question as we close, is we kind of have two options as a Christian and as a church. We can seek after longevity or we can seek after legacy. Longevity in your life, personally, is I just want to make it through life. I want to have enough resources and I don't want to run out of money before I die. That's longevity. Legacy is I'm not so much concerned about myself. God's going to take care of that. But I want, I want from the moment I'm born to the moment I die and thereafter, I want my life to make a ripple effect upon eternity. That's, that's legacy. For churches, longevity is we just need to pay the bills and make sure all our members are happy so that we don't lose people and... That's longevity. Legacy is we don't need just to take care of our members, but we've got to realize there's a community that's lost and dying and going to hell. And we have to get the gospel to every man, woman, and child. So here's the thing. For personal life and church life, are you seeking after longevity, which is basically taking care of yourself? Are you seeking after legacy, which is making an internal impact upon others? There's really those two choices in life. I can go for longevity or it's just about sustaining my life, sustaining my ministry, or I can go after legacy. I want to make the biggest and greatest impact with the time, energy, and effort God's allowed. May we seek after legacy. Amen. Final story, and we're finished. Many of you have seen the movies about the Titanic and read books about it. There's a story that many of us do not know. Of course, we know about the Titanic sinking April 4th. Um, April 14th, 1912, and over 1,500 people perishing. We know that. But here's a story I, I wasn't even aware of until recently. There's a gentleman by the name of John Harper, and he was a pastor on board. He was a widower, and he had a six-year-old daughter with him. As the boat started to break into two, people began to jump overboard, and people began to get into the lifeboats they had. And he put his little six-year-old daughter in the lifeboat, and as all this chaos was going around, he looked at her and said, I will see you again sometime. And he, he refused to get in the boat. And he was yelling out to every woman and child and lost person. Keep in mind, he's a pastor. He was yelling at every woman, child, and lost person, get in the boat. So they were getting in the boat. And as he himself jumped overboard to try to save himself if he could, uh, he was pre- preaching the gospel in the icy waters. He came across one man and he said, son, are you saved? And the guy said, no. He presented the gospel and the guy rejected him. So he went on to the next person and said, are you saved? And kept presenting the gospel. As everyone's dying around him, suffering from hypothermia, he's presenting the gospel. Are you saved? Are you saved? Finally, he makes his way back to the man. He had given him his life jacket. He's like, you need this more than I do. He presented the gospel again. And that guy accepted Christ after the second invitation. So he... He died, Mr. Harper. And there were six survivors that made it out of those icy waters that weren't in boats, that got rescued somehow. And four years later, they had a meeting, a survivor's meeting, to share the stories of what happened. And I want to read to you the account of one of the guys that survived. It was the guy that John Harper led to Christ. He said, four years ago, John Harper led me to Christ. And he said, I was going under, and John Harper presented Christ to me. And he said his last words that he heard John Harper say was, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And he said, there along in the night and with two miles of water under me, I believed. I am John Harper's last convert. And you know, as I was reading that story, it just really struck me that there's people drowning all around us. And they're not necessarily in literal waters like we'd see in the ocean, but they're living and they're dying, and they don't have Christ. And we know from Scripture that people that reject Christ die into eternity apart from Christ in a place called hell. And we need a little, a few John Harpers, the people in our lives where we live, work, and play, to ask people, tell me about your relationship with Jesus. You may be the only messenger of Jesus that someone ever hears. So if I could summarize this into one sentence before we have a brief review 
the, the culture of the kingdom is when the sayings of the Savior become the doing of the disciples. When Jesus says, you will have power and I'm giving you my authority, we put that into practice. We walk with power, spiritual dunamis, to live a victorious Christian life. And we walk in authority because we're sent out in whose name? The name of Jesus. Amen. So today we talked about the culture of the kingdom. Number one, spiritual power and royal authority are bestowed for kingdom purposes. Are you embracing the spiritual power in your life to have victory, to share your faith? Number two, the culture of the kingdom prevails where Jesus dwells. Is Jesus dwelling in your life? Is he Lord? Have you surrendered to him? If so, it should prevail. Number three, discipleship is an exciting journey of faithfulness and trust. We've got to trust Jesus. If he sends us where God guides, he also provides. Where he gives a vision, there's always provision. Amen? And finally, people everywhere are drawn to know more about Jesus. I want you to think about that person smoking the New Testament. And the least likely person to get saved. I mean, imagine a person that would burn a Bible and they accept Christ. There's people like that in your life where you say they'll never accept Christ. If you will live the message, speak the message, and embody the message, it will give them a chance to receive the message. Let us pray. Father, I'm just thankful that there's a connection between the Word of God and the power of God. And God, I don't necessarily always have the brightest things to say. I'm not the greatest communicator. But Lord, the thing is, is I'm excited that your word is powerful. And Lord, as I bring your word forth, I pray that the Holy Spirit would empower it. It would make it come alive inside the hearts of each person. So Father, I think there's two people in the audience, two groups of people. The first group is those who need to be empowered. You, you are believers, but you've never really walked in boldness and power and authority. You know the Bible talks about it, but you haven't experienced it. If that's you, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but say a prayer like this. Jesus, I realize that I don't experience complete power and boldness and authority for victorious Christian living and witness because I haven't completely and totally surrendered myself to you. So Jesus, right now, I know you're my Savior but I want to surrender my life to you as Lord. I don't want you to play janitor and fix, fix the messes and clean up all the, the just clean up the bad stuff. But Lord, I, I want you to rule my life. I want you to have the master key to every door of my life. So today, I surrender to you. Tell him now, Jesus, I surrender to you. While the, while the believers continue to pray, there may be here one today that really related to John Harper's story, that you never have accepted Christ. You never have been saved been born again. So right where you're sitting, if you want to receive the gospel message that Jesus Christ died for your sins, he was buried, he rose again so that you could have new life. Right where you're sitting, say, Jesus, I realize I'm a sinner. I realize I need saving. I need a new heart. So Jesus, right now, come into my life. I make you my Lord, my Savior, and I pray you forgive me of all my sins. Make me a brand new person. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, we want to welcome you to the family of God. Father, thank you for all you're doing. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, Amen. This time we're going to have our closing song.